Similar to many of the discussions around AI, the output from an inquiry is shaped by the experience and learning that is entered into the system, or in this case, our experiences, professionals in government contracting. These experiences vary widely and are influenced by timing, environment, expertise, technology, almost anything. Conversing with peers in industry provides an opportunity to hear and learn from others' experiences and ultimately makes us more well-rounded professionals. Welcome to Unveiled GovCon Stories, where we explore the experiences and share the stories of small businesses in government contracting to spotlight the often sugar-coated or avoided discussions that speak to the reality of doing business within the U.S. public sector as a small business. With your co-host, Tasha Jones and Yaz Wynn. In this episode, we are going to do something a little different. We want to change the format up. And um, if we receive a lot of feedback that this was a good idea, then we'll probably do a few more. And we're always looking to explore new ways of presenting content to, to our audience. So feedback, as always, is appreciated. So in this episode, we're going to do something similar to Q&A, but we're calling it Statement and Reaction. So Tasha and I like to, to in our just general conversations, kind of throw curveballs at each other and throw comments or questions out there that always spark interesting conversations. So we wanted to, to kind of offer that to our audience. Um, obviously, we want to make sure we're covering topics that are re- relevant to small businesses um, and, and spark interesting conversations amongst you all and your communities as well. So we're just going to we're going to go we're going to go for it and, and see how this works and how well it's received and how uh, potentially uncomfortable we can make each other by throwing unexpected questions out as a statement um, and eliciting a response as a reaction. So I'm going to start us off today. My first statement is too many small businesses that have a woman owned set aside status are not truly operated by women. Yes, I chose that one as my first one. That's my statement response. Go for it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's a touch on what what, what are we working with here? What thoughts? Top of mind. (laughs) You have a lot of statement. Yeah. Okay. So you're throwing hard balls, big hard balls out first, right? Okay. Uh, Yes, this is something that does happen. Um, honestly, I believe that uh, the the new changes in the regulations have, are working to benefit cutting down on that happening. But with just as with anything, you know, people always find ways to work around the rules and the regulations that exist. And I think it was more prevalent, more of a problem. I think it was a broader problem, I think is the right language to use. Historically, it is improved. But I think those same rules have probably served to actually not only limit or delay actual women-owned, women women founders from getting their certification as women-owned small businesses, because it has become a bit more rigorous and it requires, you know, women to focus. And I think it's be a hundred percent in the business. And a lot of women-owned businesses, just like, you know, minority businesses and super small businesses, you start. I don't want to say as a hustle, but, you know, your business is just you, right? You don't start with a bunch of funding and a whole bunch of employees that way. And so you may have another job. You may have, even though some do have jobs, you may have another gig or multiple companies and your other company may be making more revenue and you can't just stop that and do the GovCon stuff. But to qualify for the woman owned, 
like it can delay your application. And many, I've talked to many women who've been denied because of that. And so, yes, yes is my initial answer that there are too many, you know, small businesses with a Wolsby status and they're not truly operated by women. Yes, I believe that that is still happening today, even with the changes that are happening. Yes, I believe it will continue to continue to happen just because there's money involved. And so people are going to try to find the least path of resistance. And with the increased number of NAICs and the government's uh, intent of increasing, being more intentional about directing dollars to uh, woman-owned small businesses, yes. Okay, fair, fair enough. And I agree on all the points you made. That was a tough question to, to come out with. Um, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of pivots and shifts in the industry. And to your point, I wholeheartedly agree that, unfortunately, um, just human nature, and some will call it fortunate, you know, we're not here to to judge anyone. Um, there are those that will always find a, a way, a loophole around working, a, you know, through the stated agreements or stated ways that, or the spirits, I should say, of how something was written or drafted. And, you know, there's all sorts of permutations of woman-owned small businesses. There are all sorts of circumstances and situations that impact someone's ability to run their own company. So we get that. But it was just a fun, for me, tough question to, to throw out as as our, our opener for a statement and reaction. So what, you, what, what do you have, Sasha? Mm. See, I was going to have the one I had, you know, I feel like I, I kind of owe you. <laughs> I feel like I owe you. Um, how about this? Let's state. Minority owned small businesses are not taking advantage of the benefits of the set aside statuses that they may be eligible for. Yeah, that's 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 getting even. That's getting even. We're going to throw that one out there. For those that aren't watching or are listening to audio or haven't seen um, our faces, we are two minorities. So we can speak to this from our own, and again, these are our own personal experiences. But I would say in general, minorities aren't necessarily taking advantage of the resources that are out and that the, the government's providing and that the set-aside statuses offer. Again, I'm sure there are plenty of reasons why, um, but my experience has been that a lot of people just don't know and why they don't know or how they haven't come across it. A lot of reasons for that. But there are a lot of minorities that just don't understand the the depth of of programs that are available for minorities to to capitalize on. And are they all easy? No. Is it free money? No, not necessarily. Um, and it does take a concerted effort. And there aren't necessarily even as many programs for minorities and set asides as there should be. But there are there are some, and I don't feel like for, like I said, a plethora of reasons, also some of which being just a general lack of experience in navigating government contracts as the workforce, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the minorities are not the majority of the workforce. So we also just don't have the level of interaction and experience anymore um, that we used to in navigating government contracts. So there's, in my opinion, again, personal opinion, we don't take advantage of as many of these minority contracts and set-aside statuses that we qualify for. And a lot of it's just driven by, unfortunately, a lack of information. So hopefully some of the things we cover in this podcast, in future podcasts where we target minorities working in small businesses, we can share some information as to how to navigate the space better and, and hopefully information that you can share with others. Yeah. And 
I would counter, I quasi agree uh, with the response. And it's because I've, I've had a lot of experience, you know, uh, in my business, the B2B service offerings that we do. We have uh, quite a few clients and just engagements of talking with industry that are minority owned. And I, in my environment, I am exposed to a lot of minority owned businesses that are trying to take advantage of those programs and things. What I have found, and I will add to that, is that what I've seen is that many times how those businesses are doing businesses are doing business or approaching the people who can assist and the potential clients that may want to that may leverage those set asides often they don't have full information not always there's some people got their stuff together they're doing what they're supposed to do but many times like it's oh i got my set aside like what what you got for me kind of thing and it and that's it's not everyone, but I have seen it happen, and especially more so with new entrants and minority business founders. And that is one of those things that tend to contribute to when um, you, you go to the small business events and the more senior government people and the large businesses generalize that all small businesses come to them that way. You tend to, it's some of that that I, that I get where some of that's coming from. So I, I do believe there's plenty that are using it, but it's not as efficient because of what you said. They may not know how they don't have access to. And there's plenty, plenty of reasons we could go down a rabbit hole of trying to dissect all of those reasons. And we we won't right now. But I do believe that we have people using them. It's just it's, it's so complex with all of the different. What do you do first that I, I don't think it's it's effective. That's fair. It's it's not easy navigating. So even once you know, kind of a little bit about it you're really peeling back an onion and yeah it, it definitely gets it gets convoluted even at times so totally agree with that and and one other thing like i think it's important to call out there are more i think programs at the state local level that are focused on specifically minority there is not really a minority set aside right at the federal level and people need to understand there's the 8a program right that you have to have a status and I can, and I'm, I'm sure we are, we are butchering the language I think that they have in their actual policies, but um, usually it's, you know, woman, black, Asian. And if you, if it's like a non uh, minority status, you, you have to give a justification when you do your application for that particular set aside. But when you look at the numbers and performance within that program, the minority uh, or the majority of that minority group which tends to not be certain cultures tend to get less of the dollars, even in that program. So again, probably opening up a can of worms on that. Don't want to go down the rabbit hole in this particular format forum, but just clarifying that, you know, depending on your state, they may have like a, a, a small woman, like micro black owned, Hispanic owned, you know, Asian owned or some type of other type of set aside in, in the federal space, they don't necessarily have that specifically. Gotcha. Well, you teed, you teed me up my next question. You teed me right up. Federal, state, and local government could do more to support small businesses by way of education, representation, and right-sized opportunities. That, I mean, you were just, you were just talking through small, so you, I mean, and, and state and local work, so I figured it's, right on time. That, that's my statement. They could do more. Yes. I have seen some positive movements with this. And I think technology has played a role. Uh, like I see, I've seen, so I operate obviously in the DMV area. 
And I'm going to speak from that perspective. But like Virginia, EVA recently upgraded their system. Maryland, depending on who you're targeting in the Maryland space, they have, you know, their Emma platform, but then they also may use like Bonfire or something like that. Right. And I a little bit different from the federal opportunities when they're posted and are bundled under huge vehicles and things like that. I've seen quite a few like uh, what they call quick quotes or uh, their micro purchase or quick bids. Even their regular contracts tend to have pre-developed forms for you to fill out versus doing like the traditional government contracting proposal process, which is actually a lot more conducive for small businesses from a, a turnaround time. And being able to fill out, knowing how to structure everything, what information to put in, having those forms that basically tell them, put your information here, makes it a lot easier. And so um, I do believe, and I've seen onesie, twosies, like there was Maryland, uh, what is it? Maryland Judiciary, I believe, had put out a couple of IT, senior ITPM positions. And it was just for, you know, one person. It's like staff og stuff. And so I do believe some some states are doing that. I saw some stuff in actually in Florida too. Um, I have some clients that are down that way. So I've been paying more attention to the state level. Georgia had a few, I thought. So there's I think there's startings, uh starting to do more of that. But you're right. I agree wholeheartedly they could do more. And I think smartly applying technology to facilitate that is is one of the places where I've seen success or improvement in that. Okay. And uh, hopefully for those listening, you, you caught that little nugget of information Natasha just just kind of offered. And I specifically asked her that question because I know she does a lot of work at the state and local level. And for those that are smalls, micro smalls, and or just looking to potentially diversify your work, look at some of the work that the government the your local government is putting out. Um, because the those state and local groups do have a lot of opportunities that are a little bit more palatable and a little less um, costly to respond to for, for smalls. And hopefully federal as well as state local, also known as SLED, will help kind of move that path forward and continue helping small businesses on that trajectory to improve education and representation and things of that nature. But there's there's opportunities out there. Hopefully we're giving you all some information on how to find it. Sasha, over to you. Okay. A 2019 survey posted by Oberlo stated that 52% of small business respondents stated that their biggest problem is labor quality. I don't think that this is the case in the GovCon bubble. I'd even argue the biggest problem is paying skilled labor. Yas, your take on that. That's a heck of a statement. That's a heck of a statement. Having been on the hiring, firing, recruiting, back office side of, of the house, it's this we do govcon is really in a bubble I, I say that to people all the time um we work in a very interesting and very tailored environment where we're always looking for labor that shoots the entire spectrum um i mean the government releases contracts for for janitorial services all the way to developing ai but i would argue that paying skilled labor is still a bigger problem than the quality of labor in GovCon. There are a lot of brilliant people out here, many of whom are interested in different opportunities to work in the government. But especially if you're in the cleared space, it's hard to match the salary requirements, especially on contracts that have longer periods of performance and aren't short-term opportunities for subject matter experts to come in. It's hard to meet the salaries or compete with the salaries that people are asking for. 
and it's gotten it's going to be even more challenging it's probably it's happening already but it's going to get even more interesting as we continue to see employees fight for hybrid work where the government is making big pushes to bring people in so now you're competing with quality of life as well as how you negotiate compensation to get in the best, the brightest, the people that can hit the ground running, that serve the purpose of the contract, provide services to the agencies that you're working with, but can be compensated in a way that you can still be profitable. I mean, we, you know, many of us play the the labor mix game where you're, you know, offsetting some high or high end resources with those where you can make more profit and you're working against the average of numbers. But I mean, that's a tough game to play day in, day out across every contract. And not every small business has the resources or the folks that are skilled to do that. So, I mean, from my experience, I would I would say that the biggest problem is being able to pay skilled labor and remain profitable on your contract. I mean, let's be real. We're in this to make money. Obviously, the 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 services that we provide to the government are the priority being able to deliver great products and services are the priority but none of us are working for free it's technically illegal in most cases so i mean we're in here we're in this also to to make money grow our businesses and it's hard to grow when you the the labor rates right now are through the roof lpta Oh, LPTA. Oh, LPTA. Lowest price technically acceptable for those who don't know what LPTA is. Which is the, yeah. the, the, the other end of the pendulum swing when you're dealing with high-end labor, high rates, and, and contracts that have limited your ability to bring in necessarily the type of labor for an extended period of time that you need to perform the services that you're typically writing to or agreeing to especially as a small business. It's a fun one. It is a fun one. And it's a painful one because even when the the technical is weighted heavier, many times in the case, LPTA always, I feel it rears rears its head. Some agencies do it better than others. And sometimes I think it's applied in the wrong scenarios. And and that could be, you know, a case of the contract officer not being appropriately experienced, educated, or what have you, or some other ball dropping in the acquisition process on the back end. But it doesn't absolve the impact that it has with businesses that are, as you stated, you know, trying to compete and ensure that they can bring in the quality of skill sets that are necessary in order to provide a good service offering in today's economy, you know. So again, our rates are are a different ballgame, the GovCom bubble. Um, outside of fintech and some of the Silicon Valley, like I, I haven't seen honestly anything else like that in the U.S. I agree. I agree with that. All right. So next statement. Be hmm. nice. Be nice, y'all. All right. Here's a, here's a softball one. Contracts or legal support should be the first resource you secure as a small business. That's my statement. That was a softball. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, legal support definitely is uh, something I think small businesses should definitely uh, invest in uh, contract support and legal support as the first as the first. Yes. Yes, okay. I agree. I agree. It should be because, you know, you can get in a lot of trouble if you're not structured correctly uh, for starting out in government. You want to make sure even if it's not so much again in trouble. You want to make sure that you are setting yourself up for success 
and different like business structures and things like that have different allowances from a tax perspective. Let's just say that you you come in and you kill the game, you know, with GovCon and you make quite a bit of money depending on how you're structured, you can get knocked upside the head with your taxes. So it's good to have a conversation about your situation, what you're doing, how you're entering and how, you know, even if you're already set up in some type of way, having those conversations is important. Contractual, definitely a must. If I have, like, I mean, over time, you learn how to read certain types of documents. Like, so in the government contracting space, non-disclosure agreements is a, is a, is a daily thing. Like, it's like reading an article out of HBR. Like they're always present. Yes. Yes. So you can't, you get, I think, especially if you own your business, small business, you are going to become very adept at picking out craziness that's in a non-disclosure agreement. At first you might want to leverage an attorney to help you get familiar with it. I recommend uh, Googling. There's a lot of like law firms doing marketing and talking about non-disclosures that are specific to the government contracting space that can give you some tips of some egregious areas to look at. But even beyond the NDAs, when you're talking like teaming agreements, which I think is, I think that's kind of like a GovCon thing too. Um, I've worked on some state opportunities uh, with companies that don't do federal contracts. And I, you know, I've provided team and agreements. They're like, what is this? <laughs> and it's like, uh, <laughs> it's a way for you to make sure it's like a legal document showing that I'm committed to you, you know, before an actual award. And they're like, oh, I should incorporate this. I should incorporate this in how I do business. I'm like, yeah. They're a little commercial-esque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So team and agreements and definitely, definitely, definitely subcontracts. You are not trying to do them by yourself. You need to have <laughs> contracts and legal support. Um, looking at that, especially in GovCon, that's where you truly can get in trouble. Like the far, all of the federal acquisition regulation clauses that are in your agreement that you're, the legalese of Let's it. Not do far. We're going we're, we're to take some folks out when we start talking about FAR and DFARS. We won't even. Yeah, we're, so we're not going to go in detail. Just know that those are the rules. <laughs> you know, FAR are the rules. Those are the contract rules, but you want to make sure you have legal support that is looking at that and helping you understand, turn that into layman's term, what that means for your business, like, you know, what you have to do and stuff. And so, yes, 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 I agree. It is, it should be a first resource that you secure. You should definitely, I'd say you should have it before you even start. Like, I would, I would, I think anyone that can read and write FAR and DFAR clauses should count as bilingual. Um, I, I, I feel like it. you should be to qualify as, as someone that can speak another language because it is that painful. I just, that's just my little side note. I digress. I think it's over to you. Ah, uh, man. So uh, let's get into large businesses. You know, large businesses over a certain size, I feel like, you know, they should be required to participate in mentor protege programs, not given the option. Okay, so we are saying that for a large business, participation in the mentor-protege program should not be optional. I think that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. That's a tough, that, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, for those listening that have not participated in the mentor-protege program, it is not just something by title that's cute and warm and fuzzy and you do it because you're all best friends. It is they are binding contractual documents, participation requirements, and it's a system set up to help, like it sounds, 
um, larger businesses, and doesn't, I don't think have to be technically a large business, but larger businesses help small businesses grow in certain areas and, and learn from as well as partner with these businesses to help grow their business. It has more pros and cons than we have time to talk through. Um, so making it a requirement for a large business, I'm going to say yes. A large business that it, it has made it past their five-year mark or maybe even 10 years. If you're five years in in a large business, you definitely should be a mentor, protege, participant. And at 10 years, you have a lot of experience to share. And, and there are opportunities within government contracts where they actually give additional credit for those that are participating in mentor, protege programs. So I would say large businesses should, but almost with an asterisk where it's a, a large business that, you know, works within the same industry, has proven success because obviously you don't want to just partner with any and everybody. And if it was a requirement, then you could be partnering with any and everybody. And it could be a business that's on the horizon of selling or on the horizon of closing, unfortunately. So I would say yes, with a caveat that that large business has to meet certain standards, if you will. Government's good for standard documents. So a standard of some sort that says you are on a trajectory to continue to be successful. And so, yes, you should be required to participate in the mentor-protege program and help bring other businesses along. That does also mean that the small business has to be ready to participate in the mentor-protege program because it's not just the you hop on the bandwagon and all is fine and well and life's good and the large business is just feeding you FTEs. That's not how that works. So there's some caveats and some like the fine print and there's the fine print under the fine print and there's the print that's in like six point font to my statement. But generally speaking, I agree. Yes. And I, I agree with all the caveats because it would need to government technically can't tell, you know, companies they must. But I do believe that there should be a lot more like maybe an incentive type thing where you know, uh, the companies that do. And I and there are, like you stated, like I know the DOD Meta Protégé has funding, but it comes and goes, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so incentivizing is the right word to use, you're right. They, yeah. Business, there should be more incentives for large businesses to participate in the Mentor Protégé program. All right. Ooh, I won't do it, T. I have one question, but I'm not, I'm not gonna ask that one. I'm not gonna ask that one. Um, I'm gonna change it. So my statement. Small businesses should do a hybrid approach to their business development like capture team. And by hybrid, I mean have a blend of full-time resources as well as contractors that maybe have a certain network or a certain level of subject matter expertise or technical prowess that allows them to target certain markets that a business may be after. So the statement is that I think small businesses should really have a hybrid of full-time, like W-2 traditional business development and capture resources blended with kind of higher teams or specific individuals that help them round out their business development strategy, capture tactical items, the whole nine. That's my statement. Thoughts? Thoughts are yes. I agree with this statement with caveats and asterisks. <laughs> we should rename this episode caveats. Caveats and asterisks. I say yes because... Uh, from I would say established traditional small businesses. There's a qualifiers, right? All right. Okay. Established traditional small businesses in government contracting definitely should be using a hybrid of resources because that is one of the most effective and efficient ways from a cost perspective, as well as 
a management perspective to get the support needed when pursuing opportunities in government and doing all of the work that comes in that, that sits on the contractor side of the line and that acquisition process that happens in government when you're pursuing opportunities. So if I take away that asterisk, if I take away that that caveat of established businesses and say you're a two-person company, but you're billable, and so you're doing your own kind of version of business development with the contract you're working on, but you recognize that you need to, to expand beyond that, mm-hmm. then does your, your opinion change? It does shift a little bit because depending on just because you have a contract and you're billable, if you're one or two people, depending on the rate that you have, you may not be really making enough money to bring on a W-2 and you may not have the funding, right, to bring on a a full-time person that supports just sales, even though it would be very beneficial to have a resource like that. A good experience like business development resource is expensive in GovCon that really knows not only what to do and understands like how to figure out the different spaces and do that work, but apply it to the business and align it with the assets that business has to pursue. And there's a significant difference from a one, two person company usually than a traditional company that is established and has more uh, revenue slash profit and people and, and, and has a bit more maturity in its processes and systems. Does the threshold shift then? So if you're then the other side of that spectrum, do you not do hybrid? Do you have all internal W-2? Like, does that does the, 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 the shift all the way or do you stay hybrid? In my opinion, um, I would say stay hybrid. And okay, yeah, I say stay hybrid just because you always need, I think, an element to kind of shift, mix up like what you're getting internally. And to keep you guys honest. And sometimes um, it really just depends on the strategy. If you have your focus areas in government, your strategic focus areas, one or two agencies where you guys, you know, your flagship, where you started and where you got your first contracts and you've been organically growing. But then um, you're at a point where you want to scale and you want to try to test the waters in an adjacent market or what have you. It may not be beneficial to have a full time person or leverage somebody that already is on staff because it could potentially adversely impact your current work. And so having someone come in that is uh, outsourced or consultant um, could be beneficial in helping you get some extra, some extra resourcing to check that out. So I think it would always, it would be hybrid. Fair enough. No, fair enough. Okay. All right. Down to the wire. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna bounce back to new entrants. You know, OMB recently put out a a memo with regards to new entrants being how government should be looking at new entrants and how the hurdles and the have impacted, I think, the decline in small business in the small business um space within government contracting. And so we wanna pull back to new entrants and I would make the statement that new entrants to government contracting should focus on doing one thing well versus spreading across multiple functional or technical areas. Oh, reaction. That's a that's a statement. Um, we're definitely going to get some interesting feedback on this one. I've seen I've seen both. I've seen both. I've seen both. So let me start there by saying I've seen small businesses go in both directions. 
I don't even know how to answer this one. There's so many caveats. There's so many different ways you could look at this. I had to make a general opinion, a general statement, a general reaction to your statement, I should say. Small Sounds like you're wavering. Especially, because it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I would say, though, for small businesses, my opinion on the matter is that you should focus on doing one thing well. Now, when I say one thing, if your one thing is AI, for example, that's a lot of things kind of coupled in that one thing. And that's enough to span hundreds of resources, depending upon what you're doing with artificial intelligence. But I, I lean towards doing one thing well as a small business because it helps you establish a foundation with your customer as really truly being that partner, that subject matter expert that they can lean on. And it helps with organic growth, which as a small business, especially micro small, that's your that's your core initially. There are plenty of companies that have been, you know, brought on to contracts or been lucky enough to have the, the funding to acquire another business and buy their way into other areas of subject matter experts and but buying and large, I would say a lot of small start because they do something very well for their customer and the customer recognizes the value that they bring. And so stay with that, mature it, grow it as a line of business, grow it as a practice. And nine times out of 10, there are tendrils that kind of come from that, that core competency that you develop. And then you kind of strategically explore how you want to get into those other areas. But Spreading yourself too thin and being someone that can, your company being the service provider for all things, yeah. is not hard to staff. It's hard to write to. It's hard to to resource. It's hard to price. And it's hard to sell because you need, typically in the government, some level of past performance and doing everything and being everything for everyone where you've got one person here or one person there typically doesn't meet the qualifications that you need of size and complexity on a given contract that but you, you, you're not going to get the, the past performance that you're looking for. And you've also stretched yourself super thin. But you just hit on something. One person here, one person there. When companies first start, oftentimes that, not always, but oftentimes that's how it starts. They get disparate positions and they become almost like staff aug or staff augmentation. Uh, to others, and they may have, you know, somebody doing systems engineering over here and then cyber support over here and program management stuff over here or PMO support or something to that effect. And now they got all these different things. I mean, that's fair, but I, I would venture to guess if you dug into it, there are even commonalities there. So say you are a, a systems administrator and you, or a company that has two systems administrators, they may both be versed in in Linux or non-Windows platforms, or you may have two folks that specialize because you got an opportunity to do some, you know, RPA. And so now you've got people in a given platform. There's probably a, a type of work that you're still targeting. And I would I would still bring it back to trying to centralize what you're focusing on so that you don't spread yourself too thin and aren't able to provide the quality of service that you probably built your company on because of your expertise. Yeah. And I, I overall, I agree. I, I definitely agree with that statement. And with that, we, I think with that, have wrapped up the 
pegging each other with uh, unanticipated questions uh, on <laughs> for our first statement and response session. Hope that everyone enjoyed this kind of change up in, in our podcast. And with that, make sure you tune in every Wednesday and send us your constructive feedback, recommendations about the things you'd like to learn and your stories. We'd love to potentially have some of you guys on to tell us what, what you've experienced. Appreciate it. Again, share uh, on all the platforms. We're, we're live on all the social handles. We're happy to to communicate with and, and use any platform that works for the, the greater good. Again, you can find us on Twitter. Um, you can find us on Instagram, all the, the, the LinkedIn and other business associated platforms as well. And again, thank you all for joining. Please subscribe, like, and share our podcast to spread the word. Thank you for joining us on Unveiled, GovCon Stories, a Hive 39 media production with your hosts, Hasha and Yaz. Until next time. <laughs>